Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And it's September 2021. And in this episode, we are doing a deep dive into a novel. Something we haven't done before, Rob. No, no. This is our, what, this is our sixth year of doing this show. And we've never actually done this before. So there's always something new and exciting to do, I think, with Doctor Who. It is. We'll see how it goes. But I have a very good feeling. I've got pages and pages of notes ready to go. Uh, how are you? Dave, I, I am very well, although I think I should be asking you that. You have had an earthquake. <laughs> we have had a record-breaking, I think it's right to say, earthquake in Melbourne today. Um, or you can joke because I understand nobody ha- has has been hurt, no. um, which is good. But 6.0 in Melbourne is a pretty big deal. I felt it at work this morning, and but it was just a bit of a tremble. Uh, got home to my apartment, which is three floors up, so... Obviously shook a bit and a, a few things all over the place. And dear old Patrick Troughton has uh, fallen over on my bookshelf. He had face planted on your bookshelf. He had face planted. The, uh, my Daleks, however, had all moved out of position, but none had fallen off the shelf, though, which I'm very reassured about. Although uh, there were pictures and stuff that had uh, had fallen off. So it definitely shook the place up a bit. Yeah, what a day. Uh, what a day. And, you know, that's, that's between, you know, massive civil unrest in the city and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not not been a fun time in Melbourne this last few days, I've got to say. Can always move to Sydney, Dave. Yeah, it's not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> but we're escaping reality and talking about Doctor Who. Now, we said that we're doing a novel and we, as we like to do, put it up on Twitter in a poll as to what novel the listeners would like us to discuss. We mm. picked four novels that aren't necessarily our favourites, but were ones we thought we had something to say and would sustain a conversation. Now, thank you all for voting. 222 votes came in over Twitter, <laughs> and the results were Human Nature by Paul Cornell, 19.4%. Didn't get a lot of votes in the first round either. I thought this would get more. Mm. Uh, Nightshade by Mark Gattis, 23.4%. Alien Bodies by Mad Larry Lawrence Miles got mm. 24.8%. But the winner from fairly early on and really just stayed in front for a long time was Mark Platt's Lungbarrow, 32.4%. We've read it, we'll come in and we will talk about it in the main part of our show. We certainly will. And we've got a lot to say, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, it is a big story in the Doctor Who canon. There's a lot to say. It is, it is. And and look, we'll, we'll get to it later, but I'll just say up front, it's a story that does fascinate fans. When you talk about it, they, they go, oh, that story. So yes, we're talking about that story tonight. Absolutely. And, and look, our listeners clearly voted for that story. So uh, I think that's quite telling. Rob, we have a review to read. Yes, we do. Uh, lovely John from the Doctor Who Versus podcast, who you can find uh, on Twitter at Doctor Who VS has written us a review on Podchaser, so not Apple uh, Music this time, or iTunes as I often call it, uh, but Podchaser. And he said on Podchaser, hands down, my favourite Doctor Who podcast. Insightful, knowledgeable hosts who love Doctor Who. Well made, great conversations centred around well thought out topics. Rob and Dave are the bee's knees. Thank you, John. That's really kind. Yes, lovely. Lovely, lovely way to start the show. It is. No, thanks for that. We appreciate reviews like that. But we will dive into the news, and the first item is mine, and that is we have had an announcement about the next animated series for Blu-ray release, and it is Galaxy 4. Mm, And I'm quite worried about this based on the footage we've seen. (laughs) 
So I, I haven't really judged the footage we've seen. It was fairly nondescript, I thought. The release date, I believe, is the 15th of November. Now, they are animating all four episodes because it says you can watch them all in colour or black and white. But they also have got the restored episode three and that five-minute clip from episode one that still exists on the set. They're also going to have a doco on the making of the story and a doco on the finding of the story, which I must admit... I know nothing about. I remember when this and The Underwater Menace Part 2 were both found. I remember when they were leaked out fairly quickly, and I think every fan that I knew certainly had seen them both uh, illicitly way before they were ever released officially. Uh, but I actually don't know a lot about how they were found, so that could be quite interesting. I believe Dallas Jones might have uh, something to do, perhaps not with the finding, but with the, um, the documentary on there. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Mm, yeah. I, I, no, no Dallas from back last century. Yeah, he mentioned something to me on, on Facebook the other day. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, but I haven't had a discussion with him about it, so we'll see. Yeah, so look, the animated stories are quite controversial at the moment in fandom. The Web of Fear episode 3, which recently came out on the Web of Fear disc, has attracted a, quite a lot of criticism. My copy only arrived yesterday, so that's on my uh, homework list for the next episode. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, people went to the BFI screening of Evil of the Daleks last week and rave reviews. So mm. full spectrum of opinions out there, and we don't quite know where Galaxy 4 will land. Yeah, well, they gave us a little clip and they didn't show any sort of actual characters in the clip um was more just like the TARDIS and a very very brightly colored orangey sort of planet and what animation we did see it was like ooh, ooh, I could have maybe done that with that Adobe animation package I've got on my computer that I've never used Ooh, I don't know about this yeah look the orangey doesn't actually bother me at all because I watch them all in black and white and, um, <laughs> um, and without character movement, I think we probably can't judge. But uh, look, we will wait and see. But I'm glad that it's getting a proper release because previously the existing episode was only available as an extra on the Aztecs special edition. Famously, you couldn't even just watch the episode. It, it came as part of a as part of a telesnap abridged sort of restructured story that you had to fast forward through the remade one and two if you want to watch part three mm. so I'm, I'm glad it's going to be out there on its own i think it deserves a release it's not the best hartnell but it's an interesting hartnell and we'll have more to say when it comes out later this year we certainly will moving on uh john bishop has been in uh, doctor who magazine talking about working on the show I, I don't know if he'll get into trouble for this he seems to get into trouble every time he mentions something about the show Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. He's in the official organ of Doctor Who, Dave. I fully suspect that some of the times he, in inverted commas, gets in trouble is just BBC publicity trying to get the story shaken up a little bit more. <laughs> I think you might be right. Uh, anyway, in Doctor Who magazine, one of his comments is on uh, working with this uh, team. And he says, look, they've been great to work with, so welcoming, really supportive, particularly to someone like me who's not done a run in a series like this before. I know everyone says it. But as everyone says, Jodie is phenomenal. The way she carries the show, the amount of responsibility that she wears so lightly on her shoulders is staggering. The run's coming to an end soon, and we were all talking earlier about how weird it will be not to see each other every week. And indeed, there have been pictures of him filming this final episode of Jodie's uh, as as we speak this, this week, actually. So I'm not sure if Mandip Gill is in it, though. I haven't seen her in any of the spy photos. Well, I did see somebody tweeting that if what they had heard was true, Mandip would join a very, very small group of companions who have covered the whole of a Doctor's 
run. So they certainly think that she's in there until the very last moment of Jodie's time. Mm. One past companion of Jodie's has been seen at filming, though I don't know if I should mention uh, mention them. Oh, I think that that's all we need to say. I think those that want to know what it is will go and Google it, and those that don't want to know don't want to know. Mm, very good. But it is, it is it is quite exciting. Yes. Um, a quick note from me, and um, once again, I'm going to mention writer and director Kevin Smith and his podcast. And just again, to talk a bit more about learning about what's happening in terms of filming around COVID. Smith was doing a live podcast, so to speak, rec- recorded with an audience, I, I, I guess I mean. Mm-hmm. And he, he said to the audience, I'm asking you all to wear masks and, and, and go through all these checks, even though in California now you're not required to, but I'm about to go back to filming my new movie, Clerks 3. And if anybody on the set gets COVID, the whole thing is shut down. He was talking about how the COVID marshals now on filming sets are more powerful than, than the director. They can stop any activity they don't think is safe. They require everybody to do tests every morning before they arrive at the set. And again, if somebody gets a test fail or, or is positive for COVID, they, they can shut the whole thing down for two weeks potentially. So mm. he was being very, very careful about that. And, and it really just, I think, informed me further about when we've talked about the series coming up, taking longer to film, being more expensive to film, and therefore there are less episodes and all of that. I don't think we've really quite appreciated just how much of an extra time sink and money sink filming in COVID must have been and and filming in these sort of circumstances. And even I've heard directors talk about having to make artistic decisions based around COVID. And there's one series, I'm sorry, I can't remember what it was, but I, I was reading about it recently where the director said, we actually wanted one of the big scenes in the last episode of this season to be two people who'd been... Um, circling each other in a relationship for some time, finally having a kiss. But the kiss had to happen off screen because we couldn't have a COVID-safe kiss. So, <laughs> you know, they, they can circle each other. They can look lovely each other. You can have tight shots and, and shots back and forth. But actually a big mouth open, oh, my God, I really love you and I'm expressing a kiss, can't be done in a COVID-safe way. So that was out there. And the, and the director said, this has 100% compromised... The, the moment we wanted to get because it's more implied they hooked up than we see it. But that was better than not doing the whole thing. And so I, I think this is just really reinforced in my mind. If when we get a truncated series, we're lucky to get anything at all. And just anything filming in the last year has been tougher, I think, than we really as fans have appreciated. Oh, a- absolutely. And look, this this reminds me of something that happened just last night. And while you've been talking, I pulled up the details. Last night, one of our followers alerted me to uh, a lady on Twitter. Uh, she's at Eva V. Wakeford. And her tweets are actually now protected because last night she uh, announced on Twitter that her, her, dr- her dream job has come up. She's going to be working with the production team on Doctor Who. And I thought, oh, wow, what's what's all this about? And does that suggest that she's working on the next series of Doctor Who, perhaps? And a lot of fans actually jumped on and started asking her that. So to do a bit of research, I dived onto her uh, website, which she lists on her Twitter profile, and it says she's a screenwriter and script editor. And I thought, oh, she might be a, a new script editor, perhaps. From her personal website, I dived over to her LinkedIn where she announced, I'm ecstatic to announce I'll be joining the BBC Doctor Who production team as their COVID testing scheduler. 
And I thought, oh, well, there we go. She's She's got a foot in the door. She must be a screenwriter, script editor in a sort of spare time. And she wants to maybe get into that in television. But she is actually getting into the production team. There is a role on Doctor Who to be the COVID testing scheduler. Yep. And that's a full-time role, a full-time wage, all the rest of it. Yes. That has to come out of a budget. Exactly right. So this is how the world has changed. And you talking about that reminded me of this very timely uh, thing. It looks like maybe all the fans writing to her and saying, oh, does that mean you're working on season 14? Uh, she's now protected her tweets and isn't answering any questions. So that's that's all just happened uh, in the past day, Dave. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, one last piece of news from you, Rob. Yes. Uh, now, there have been a lot of rumours about when season 13 will start uh the 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 hot one for a long time has been halloween because i believe halloween starts on a sunday and apparently the first episode is going to be a bit spooky so people have put two and two together and made five it doesn't sound like a bad guess because i mean as we sit here today we still don't know when it will be but it's got to be surely starting in the next month and in the next month we are sort of at halloween yeah if it's six episodes and it's finishing before christmas I guess the absolute latest it can start is maybe the first, second week of November. So it's going to be about Halloween or just after. And Rob, as we were discussing offline earlier today, we can absolutely guarantee that between us recording this and dropping it in about four days' time, we will probably get the announcement. Yes, yes. And we'll have people very helpfully tweeting us to say we missed it. So there you go. Our guess, like other fans, is, is around Halloween. Might not be Halloween. Who knows? No, and, and look, we'll start to see publicity and announcements probably in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, look, potentially in the next day or two, knowing our luck. Exactly. Short topics, Dave. Short topics. I want to confess that I have made a mistake, Rob. <gasps> really? I bought something I shouldn't have. Oh, I do that all the time, usually with <laughs> watches and things. Uh, no, so a friend of mine sent me a link to a book, because he knows I'm a big fan of the Virgin New Adventures, and he said, oh, have a look at this. Somebody has compiled a book of all the preludes from Doctor Who magazine for the new adventure. So as we were discussing in our last episode on Doctor Who magazine comics, particularly at the time of the new adventures in the 90s, there was a lot of building between Virgin and DWM to try and create this universe that all of Doctor Who in the Wilderness years existed in. And part of that was in a lot of editions of DWM for most of the run of the Virgin books... They had a two-page prelude by the author of the book that was just a little sort of short story prelude about what was going to happen in the novel that would come out two weeks later. Somebody's taken all these, put them all in a book with all the sketches that accompanied them and done it as a, uh, you know, Lulu release, print, print, print for yourself release. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll get on that. It says at the front, edited by Gary Russell. I thought, oh, Gary's given his seal of approval. That's good. And I went and I ordered it and I got very excited that it was coming. Yes. And then, then I saw on Twitter, somebody mentioned this as well, and Gary Russell come in and say, this is completely unofficial. He has not asked the permission of any of the authors. He's reproducing the work without any of their permission or without giving them any sort of uh, allowance or monetary compensation. And where it says edited by Gary Russell, that apparently doesn't mean he edited the book. It means he edited the articles when they were printed in DWM in the mid-1990s. Oh, God. Gosh, has yours been printed and posted? Or Mine had been printed and posted. I have the copy here. And um, I don't know how to feel about it because I'm really happy that I've got this thing of previews to go back and, and, and read. But uh, this is absolutely not legitimate and they haven't done the right thing by a lot of authors whose works I'm big fans of. So 
I I got caught out. Gosh, that that's like a that's like buying a bootleg album or something, like a live album or something. Without, but, but without even knowing that you've done it until afterwards. Like, it looks like a legit release. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, when I've gone out buying bootleg albums, I'm buying bootleg albums. I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, but, but here, yeah, gosh, that's um, it's an interesting item. But yeah, you're conflicted. <laughs> yeah, so look, I'm not giving the title of the book. I'm not giving where to find it. I'm not giving any of that. But uh, yeah, wow. It, it may get shut down, is, is what I'm thinking. Uh, look, Gary Russell, as I say, was certainly aware of it. So whether he's taken action to do that, I don't know. But yeah, that that was quite interesting. And um, as I say, feel conflicted about it. Mm. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, we'll quickly <laughs> move away from that. Uh, just a quick one for me. I recently watched the season 24 Blu-ray. I know you had done that about a month or two earlier. And uh, I thought some of the extras on this were really great. If you haven't dug into them, the, the Here's to the Future documentary, which I think was on one of the final discs, is great. The Sylvester interview with Matthew Sweet is really, really good. But what I was really surprised about, and I have mentioned this on Twitter, so if you're a regular Twitter person, you may have seen me mention it, is the behind-the-sofa features were really good this time. Mm. On, on some of the past box sets, they've had just, like, random people, not even actors... You know, and I've thought, oh, this is kind of just like listening to a podcast. Why are these people on here? But this uh, lineup is like Davo with Tegan and Nyssa. It's Colin with the Valyard. It's Sylvester with, you know, Mel and Ace. And I know I just mixed up real names and <laughs> actor names. I know, I know, I know I do that all the time. But, you know, to, to cut between those three groups watching Sylvester's stories and commenting on them, and Davo is at his most acidic best with some of the stuff he says it's just a delight i i loved this and now i want to go back and actually watch more behind the sofas on other discs because i, I just stopped watching them as features i thought oh they're just having like random like someone who wrote a book you know as a talking head i, I don't need to see that you know they're they're really no different to me doing a podcast you know <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you mean i think there are some really good ones and some really quite ordinary ones and um the season 24 ones are definitely really good because you get Colin and Jason who are really just sort of very senior actors now who are looking back and they they know everybody that's in these stories. Oh, that's them. That's him. That's her. And they know about them. And, and there's a real warmth to, mm. to the way they're, they're talking about their craft and the people they've worked with. And then you've got McCoy with Bonnie Langford and Sophie Aldred who... Uh, looking back at the work that they did and Mel sort of talking about, you know, this is this is my story. And then Sophie's like, oh, this is where I come in. And that's really quite lovely. And they're really quite fond of it. And then, yeah, you've, you've got Dave on his TARDIS team who are just adjusting the right balance of, um, of, uh, of being nasty with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> and is it just me or, or does Janet really know a lot about Doctor Who these days? She seems to know the plots and what's going to happen. And she seems really, really into it. Yeah, she, she does. I think they, they, they are actually great fun to watch and um, that is quite enjoyable. There's another really good one and I don't remember which season it was, but it's got Mark Strickson, Fraser Hines and Matthew Waterhouse. And it's basically sort of the three lads having quite a fun time talking about it and their different perspectives. But it's also very clear from that one that Matthew Waterhouse is kind of the real Doctor Who fan and there's lots of, Matthew, Matthew what's happening here? <laughs> Fabulous. And um, and Matthew's sort of a little bit embarrassed and a little bit proud, so that's quite fun. But yeah, there are some good ones out there, and um, there are some less good ones. But yeah, the season twenty four box set is really good. Yeah, fantastic. 
Um, just a quick mention from me as well. I haven't watched a lot over the last month, but I did watch the three existing episodes of the Daleks Master Plan, and gosh, they're good. You know, Campfield does a wonderful job, but they are they're just three such different types of story all within this one big massive story the the difference between episode two set on Kemble with the Dalek Alliance and Mavic Chen being introduced and all that's going on and then suddenly you've got this romp with Daleks in ancient Egypt <laughs> it's it's really good but the one thing that I really noticed is I still feel like episode two is a newly found episode really it because I think it must be because I didn't see it as a kid yeah, yeah. And so anything I didn't see as a kid feels new. And even though I've now seen it probably five or six times over the last 15 years or so, it still feels like a little bit newer than the other ones. And that's a really interesting feeling. And going into the, watching The Web of Fear over the next week or so when I will watch my new Blu-ray, I think that's also going to be interesting to see. Does it feel like a newly found episode still? Or is it just mm. I'm now just putting on The Web of Fear? Question without notice, if mm. they're going to animate something for the 60th anniversary to sort of, you know, put put some product out there, do you reckon they'll do Dalek's Master Plan for it? That would certainly be a, a, a very cool thing to do. Yeah. And given that they seem to be getting a lot of accolades for evil, which was a big undertaking, I mean, that's six episodes to animate up, seven if they've done the whole thing and they're doing it like Galaxy 4, which they may well mm-hmm. be doing, you know, I think they, they would know that those big Dalek epics are popular and will sell. So they may well do it, and I would love them to do it. It would it would be tough, though, because it's not just 12 episodes. It's 12 very different episodes with mm. lots of different characters and lots of different sets. So uh, that would be a very, very big undertaking. But, yeah, if you want something huge for an anniversary, that's probably it. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other day. Yeah. yeah if that doesn't happen now, Rob, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, quickly, uh, finally, I should say, B&M put out Doctor Who sets of action figures in the UK. Two things to note. There has been some massive scalping going on of late. Uh, did you see that picture online of some guy who'd picked up like about, I don't know, 20 or 30 packs of each L- of them? Literally, literally two pallets. Yeah. Uh, just crazy stuff Lead, leading me to go on a bit of a campaign to say look look character options just sell everything online you do it so well when there's an exclusive like the the pat troughton who fell over on your bookshelf earlier he was an exclusive <laughs> made in limited numbers and yet it was up on the website day after day after day after day for people to order if anyone wanted one they could get one wherever they lived in the world you know there was none of this oh i gotta go to you know some b&m store 20 miles away and it's like and there's none left you know, you don't have any of that trouble. I, I don't understand how that works. Anyway, I'll get off my high horse on that, uh, particularly because I don't live in the UK and it doesn't really affect me. No, look, I've been watching all this and it's just reinforced my view that being a Doctor Who fan in the UK seems to be incredibly stressful. Being a Doctor Who fan in Australia can at times be frustrating because mm. we have to pay more to get stuff posted out here and things take a bit longer to get out here. But but I've never not been able to get something. Whereas in the UK, my Twitter feed seems to be full of people. Anytime a Blu-ray box set comes out, people stress that they're not going to get it and I've missed out on this one and I didn't yeah. get this one. And it happens every time and yet we just go down to our local shops and buy one. The same with the character option stuff. That stuff comes out and, and my, my Twitter feed is just full of fans stressed 
that they're going to miss out on this one. And they, 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 they're packing their, their lunches and they're getting their anoraks and they're getting on a donkey and they're, yeah. they're, they're getting a local tracker to, to make a map of all the secret stores that might sell it in the you know greater British Isles and try and find it and it's not sold. And, and we just order it from whichever local you know specialist shop in Australia has them. I've never missed out on one either. And it's never yeah. been stressful. So British fans... Tweet us, right into us. Is it as stressful being a fan in the UK as it seems to be? Yeah, because this is the thing too. We get them sold in local pop culture stores. They sometimes don't have the gold B&M sticker, but this whole thing that they're exclusive to B&M, no, they're, they're sold in all sorts of stores all over the world. Yeah, look, uh, those of you who listen to 42 to Doomsday and um, Aaron owns a shop there and they've interviewed him a couple of times. He's, his shop's only about 15 minutes from my place. And now I just email him and when I, when I see a release, I want to say, Hi, hi, Aaron. Uh, when you get the Day of the Daleks box set in, can you put one aside for me? Yep, no worries, man. I'll let you know when it's in. Done. Yeah. Or I just get on the website of any, as you say, any sort of fan Doctor Who sci-fi pop culture shop and just say, please post me one. And they have them in stock. Easy. It's... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's exactly right. I mentioned there were two things to mention with regard to this, uh, and that there is a new character option set coming called the Five Doctors set. It's not Five Doctors, though. It's actually Pertwee from the Five Doctors, a Cyberman, and the Raston Warrior Robot. I'm pretty excited about that set. Yeah, look, I'm not as excited as other people, but um, <laughs> it is it is a very cool thing. And look, just like we were saying a couple of months ago, wow, they're doing Sensorites. Who would have ever thought you could buy a Sensorite to put on your shelf who would ever have thought you could buy a Raston Warrior robot to put on your shelf? Like that, that, that is very cool. And people can debate the state of uh, new Who merchandise, mm. but there's no doubt that classic Who merchandise still sells. Oh, big time. Anyway, Dave, that's the end of our short topics. We do have a big feature to get through now. We do. So, Rob, it's time to dive into our main feature. That is the... Doctor Who Virgin New Adventure novel, Lung Barrow. Yes, and look, I mentioned earlier, there's there's kind of a reputation around Lung Barrow. There's a mystique, you know, it's it's from an old set of novels called The New Adventures, you know, that less and less fans of today have read. And it's the end of that run of novels. It's it's the novel that costs loads of money. It's the novel that reveals who the Doctor is. You know, fans hear about this one and their eyes widen and their heartbeat starts to pick up. And basically, unlike any other new adventure, uh, maybe with the exception of Human Nature, because obviously it got made into a TV story, this is the one, Dave, that fascinates people. Yeah, look, it is. And the other side of it as well is that I think the new adventures are having a bit of a renaissance at the moment, partly off the back of the 30th anniversary of their first book coming around during this year, and that's attracted some interest. Also, I think because there's a lot of fans of particularly my sort of age and your age as well who were teenagers in the wilderness years, did absolutely love and read and digest these books, and they're now podcasters in their 40s. And talking about what that happened in their childhood. So this is kind of like when we were in fandom and there was a certain generation of fans who would tell us all about the stories they watched in the 60s. We'll go, wow, that was so amazing. You know, this, this, is, this is for us what that was, you know, what we were watching when we were teenagers. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's, a, it's a really cool thing. So let's expand a bit there, Rob, on what you said in terms of the context in which Lungbarrow came out. Now, yes. first up, written by Mark Platt. We'll talk about him in a moment. Published in March of 1997. So 
for those who aren't aware, the telly movie happens in 1996, in May of 1996. At around about that time, the BBC have cottoned on that actually they have this big property and they've given all the rights to make original novels to Virgin. And they say to Virgin, well, we would actually quite like those rights and to write our own books about this big property we have. So when your license expires next year, we're not renewing it. Yeah. And so there was this weird period where the Virgin books knew for about a year that they were on borrowed time and that when their license expired, they would be finishing. And so there was then that build-up towards the finish of the run. So this did feel like the end of a series. It was the end of a 61-book run, and it felt like when you get a six-season television series and you know that the end of this season is the end of the series. It, it felt like that. And it was a big deal that this thing we've been following was coming to an end. Now, there were several different endings to this series because Lungbarrow was in some ways the end of the McCoy era. After 10 years of Sylvester McCoy being the Doctor, we were actually going to get the final Sylvester McCoy story that led into the telly movie, which we saw in 1996. Mm. But at the same time, the next book, because there was another book, and that was The Dying Days, which has a very different tone. It's a Paul McGann book, and it's just the Virgin guy saying, you know what, we're going to have one with McGann just before we go, just to show we can, just before you get your dirty paws on this BBC. <laughs> and, of course, for those who are big fans of the range, you'll know that the novel So Vile a Sin, although it was set about five books earlier than Longborough, actually came out after Longborough because there were... Um, <clears throat> Issues with somebody's computer crashing. <clears throat> um, we won't go into that. <laughs> no, not this time. Not this time. But but yeah, so it, it was something that we all looked forward to. And I remember it being announced that the last Sylvester McCoy novel was going to be called Lungbarrow. It was going to be based on this idea that was from the original televised series that got rejected by JNT. It was by Mark Platt, who had written the Battlefield novel, and he'd written Ghostlight, and we'll talk more about you know, the stuff he'd done in the meantime. But it, it developed before it was even published a certain mystique, mm. that it was going to try and wrap up all these things that we'd invested so much time of our lives into. And, and just to make this final point on, on that part, this was like the series for us. Although we look back now and it just looks like a run of spin-off books that happened when we weren't making the show, for us in the wilderness years, this was the show. Announcements about titles and authors and which monsters were coming back were as big a deal for us in the 90s as they are about the new series now. I, I cannot stress that enough. Oh, yeah, and look, I know that from my time reading the 8th Doctor Adventures that came after because you'd, you'd read them month to month and discuss them on, like, Rec Arts, Doctor Who, the news group, or the, the Jade Pagoda group online, and and you would discuss them like you were watching a TV series, an ongoing TV series, so I totally get it. Yeah, and this didn't just go back to the start of the new adventures, but it actually did go back to the TV series. Some of the ideas that are in Lungborough actually are seeded in the novelisation of Remembrance of the Daleks, and indeed, the televised version of Remembrance of the Daleks, so this mm. is this is linked very, very much to the series and to what Cartmel wanted to do. And I, I guess we better use for the first time in this, this chat the, the <laughs> phrase Cartmel Master Plan. Yes. Should we talk a bit about Mark Platt? Yeah, what what have you got to say about Mr. Platt? Well, I think fans first heard about Mark Platt when he wrote Ghostlight for season twenty six. That was 1989, and Platt was 36 at the time. And famously the second ever fan to actually get a script up. 
Exactly. Precisely what I was going to say. Lovely segue <laughs> here, Dave. Um, that means he was born back in the 1950s. So he was actually a great age to watch Doctor Who from the start. He was about 10 years old, I think. Mm. So he, he, he had watched Doctor Who from the start. He was a big fan. He knew all about it. Of course, though, season 26 was the, was the end of the show on television. So although he got this great gig, he couldn't sort of take it anywhere on, on Doctor Who television style because there was no more of that. So he went into doing target novels he did the ghostlight one he also did battlefield which was ben aronovich's script but he did the the novel uh he then wrote downtime which is a director video story with the brigadier sarah jane victoria the great intelligence if people have never seen that that parlayed into some virgin new adventures times crucible uh, which is part of the cat's cradle trilogy that's near the start of the range and then this book which is at the end of the range obviously lung barrow he also got to novelise Downtime for the Virgin Missing Adventures range. And from there, he just did a lot of bits and pieces in like Decalogues and yearbooks and the Big Finish short trip series. People don't even remember these days that Big Finish did a series of hardcover books because they just think of the audios. And then, indeed, speaking of audios, he's done about three dozen Big Finish. They're not all full-length stories. Some of them are just short stories. But he has done a lot of of Big Finish since he... So, technically, he'd be best known for Big Finish these days. Yeah, absolutely. And and Platt was particularly well-known for being part of that Andrew Cartmel gang, along with Ben Aronovich and Ian Briggs, that, that group that really were close friends and drove a lot of the themes and the arcs that surrounded the McCoy years and, and afterwards, and, and who did put together the, I'm going to say it again, infamous <laughs> Cartmel master plan. But when, we, when, when you go through that list of stories... Rob, it, it's it's not just that he wrote those stories. He wrote stories that are notable. Ghostlight was a very talked about story in season 26. Some people instantly loved it. Some people instantly hated it. I can remember two years later when the novelization came out, a, a lot of people going, ah, that's what it's about. <laughs> you know, that was yeah. a really, it was a really genuine thing. Time's Crucible was another one where you sort of got to the end of it and you go, okay. I think I get what it was about now. Now that I know that I might go back and read it again to understand it. <laughs> you know, he he didn't just write simple books. He wrote he wrote he wrote books. Mm, yeah. Yeah, very very literary, I could say. Yes, and, and and therefore a very deliberate choice to write this last McCoy story. Mm. Rob, did you read it at the time? I didn't. This was what? It's it's early 97, we said. So I was getting closer and closer to reading Doctor Who again with the EDAs, which would, you know, launch probably middle of that same year. I, and I would have definitely been reading them by the end of 97. So I was on my way back towards the novels. I seem to have some recollection of being, you know, just back in the fold. And obviously I knew what the NAs were because I'd made the conscious decision not to read them, you know, back in 1991. And I still wasn't reading them in 97. By that stage, I was thinking, I want to read Doctor Who, but oh, there's so many of these now. You know, I'll just start fresh with the Eighth Doctor stuff. And looking back, you know, I, I often would feel that I'd perhaps miss something with the NAs and perhaps miss something in, in particular when it came to this last book in the series, which, you know, quotation marks, told you all about the Doctor's past. So when the BBC put out a PDF of it in 2003 which I've researched, and it stayed up online until 2010. I read that. Now, I couldn't tell you what year exactly. I'd like to think it was about 2004 I read it as a PDF. And I haven't read it again since until 
this uh, this episode. Do you remember what sort of vibe you took away from it when you read it then? Yeah, I do. Um, and this will probably come into our discussions later. I found it very uh, hard to read. So that's exactly my memory as well. I would have been not quite 17, just off 17 when I read this. And I do remember reading it. And I remember taking a long time to get into it. I remember the, the first 50 pages really felt hard uh, when I was 17. Um, which is interesting because I feel very differently about it now. Shall we go into our non-spoiler overview? Yeah, look, let's, because mine follows on from ex- what I was just saying, that, you know, the first time I read this, I thought, oh, my God, what a heavy book. And not heavy insofar as it's particularly complex, but the writing here and there can be a bit clunky in the way things are introduced. And you just have this feeling that Platt's rubbing his hands together and thinking, oh, if you think Ghostlight was weird, you know, when do you read this? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, ultimately it presents a pretty weird story. It's made even weirder by the way it will just introduce people or events or mention Gallifreyan things without any sort of help as to what they are. By the time you've read it, when you get to the end, you can grasp what happened. Uh, I, you know, don't get me wrong. But I think this is a book you really need to read twice. Once to sort of blow out the cobwebs and then a second time to go back and you know who all these strange people are. You know what all these strange names refer to. And you aren't distracted by them or, or annoyed by them. And you can just enjoy the story. Yeah, I, I can echo a certain amount of that, although perhaps with a slightly different tone. I certainly found that although I didn't remember a lot of the specifics of the book and individual characters and, and, and the like from 20-something years ago, I did know sort of the big plot beats and remember that's what some of the big revelations were. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, did help my reading the book this time. I'm also obviously a much older and more experienced reader. Not, not that I you know, wasn't a, a nerdy, literate 17-year-old, but I, I was 17. <laughs> reading it this time I found it a much much easier read and a much more exciting read and, and it was the sort of book where I'll go to bed and I'll say right I'm going to do a few chapters of Lung Barrow before I turn the light off and I'll do a few chapters and think oh what time is it uh, I can do another one can't I and then I'll have a look and go oh the next one's only eight pages oh, I'll do one more and, and I did want to know where the story was going, and I did enjoy the read. It definitely was a better read for me as an adult and, and, and the second time around. There are still problems with it. Uh, there was a point around the halfway mark where I stopped and thought, I, I don't know what's going on right now, and had to sort of mm. go back a couple of pages and go, okay, so who, who's where and what's happening? Okay, I think I'm with this. And, and then it, it started to make sense again. There was stuff like that. I can certainly echo what you said, Rob, about things not always being introduced in the easiest of manners. It didn't really bother me, but there are times when you sort of start a chapter and you go, what, what's this about? And then you get to the end of the chapter and go, oh, that's what that was about. Okay, which is perfectly fair. Uh, and, and, and it's not helped by the fact that Platt does have the same problem as a lot of modern Star Wars in that his names are totally incomprehensible and unmemorable. <laughs> And, yes. um, and you, you just can't attach them to a character. They're, they're terrible literal literary space names rather mm. than, you know, good Holmesian names like Sabalom Glitz. We go, oh, I get that. I, he's that guy. These are the names that they might just as well be random consonants. Yeah. Uh, with a couple yeah. of exceptions, Innocent is a lovely name. I, I got her. Um, but other ones you just go, okay, that's 
<laughs> and you didn't really, and it took a long time to, to work out who that was. Um, his, his, yeah. his name is is not good. I've got more thoughts, Rob. But but what did you think beyond that? Oh, look, I'm I'm ready to bring the spoiler curtain down, Dave. Before I say any more, to be honest. Oh, okay. Well, the, the one other point I'll have is it's an interesting read, and we'll expand this, I think, as we go through because there were times when I thought I've just read this for the last hour and nothing's happened. Yeah. But there are other times when I'd go, so much has happened in the last hour without anything really happening. It's, it's, a, it's <laughs> it, 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 it is a book. It is not a novelization. It's not a TV show. It is a book, and it's very paced in that way. Yeah, I mean, there is an A plot. There is a B plot. The B plot's kind of weak and flimsy and gets forgotten about at times. Uh, again, I'm trying to be non-spoiler. Well, well let's, let's put the spoiler <laughs> curtain down so you can expand on that thought, Rob. Spoiler curtain's down. Let's go. All right. So what we'll do, we've, we've divided the book into three parts, and we'll uh, read a little plot summation for a couple of minutes of each of those parts and then see what thoughts come out of it, partly to help prompt the discussion and partly because... There are probably people who haven't read 310 pages of Lungbarrow recently. <laughs> exactly. So we don't normally do this, folks, but I think for Lungbarrow, which is probably something a lot of you won't have read or will ever read, this is where you learn about it. Yeah. So we'll get into the first third of the novel and I will kick us off. We open on ancient Gallifrey, where the other one of the three who founded the Time Lord Society, along with Rassilon and Omega, has fallen out with Rassilon and is saved from a mob attack by what is clearly meant to be the Hand of Omega. Yes, this, this is huge because it shows that the Pythia, who was, who was the matriarchal leader of Gallifrey, has been overthrown and her followers have been sent away to Khan to, to become the Sisterhood of Khan, which I think a lot of fans would obviously know. And through a curse... Uh, made by the Pythia as she died, Gallifreyans are now barren. Both of those things are both big plot points in this book. So there's some some background even in this opening, you know, couple of pages. And and this is definitely a case of if you are not somebody who has been following the new adventures and is across the lore that they have introduced, particularly with the as I pronounce it, Pythia. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I, see. I don't know which is correct, but in my mind, she's always been a Pythia. <laughs> Interesting. Um, mm. I've never heard it said out loud. <laughs> but yeah, like if you don't know who the Pythia is, then this would make uh, not a lot of sense. Let alone you've got to know who Omega was and who Rastlin was, and even the other who was introduced as far back as the novel of Remembrance of the Daleks. Exactly to tie back into what you were mentioning uh, earlier on the podcast. But we soon cut to uh, the Doctor's companion, Chris Queech, who is experiencing some strange memories, including some flashbacks of being taught in the house of Lungbarrow as an adult-sized boy. Now, that's quite weird. The Doctor and Chris then arrive at Lungbarrow, where Chris is stung by some weird webs that are hanging in the house and falls unconscious and starts having visions of events that happened years before around the time the Doctor was leaving Gallifrey. Now, this is this is some good exposition here because as Chris's spirit or ghost or whatever it is sort of zooms around the house 673 years earlier... Uh, yes, it's that weird, folks. Um, go with us on this. Chris learns a bit about what's going on, that each house on Gallifrey is permitted a limited number of cousins. They're created from the house loom, uh, and they all engage in Time Lord Society. The looms became necessary because of that curse of Pythia, which we mentioned earlier. 
And Chris then witnesses a past event in the house where the head of the house, called Quences, there's one of those good sci-fi names, <laughs> is refusing to read his last will and basically die uh, after he reads this will until a final guest arrives. But then he is murdered by someone he seems to recognise. Was it the first Doctor who he was waiting on who came in and murdered him? A murder mystery starts. Chris comes around back into his body. The TARDIS has vanished through the floor. The Doctor's gone. But Chris catches up to him and the Doctor is clearly lying to him about where he is, pretending he has no idea where they are. But he's at home. He's in Lungbarrow. Yeah, so a lot of this first third is really setting up the Lungbarrow set and, the, and, and location and how the house works. And this idea of a modern, organic, semi-telepathic living house in which the Time Lords or, or, the, or the Doctor's family, his cousins, live. And there are houses all over Gallifrey with their own loom and they loom new Time Lords and they have a set number that they're allowed to do so. But all this stuff where this isn't what you think of Gallifrey as being if you've watched the TV series. This isn't all gleaming metal and flashing lights. It is even gloomy obsidian like in The Deadly Assassin. This is weird living furniture and, and, and growths and out-of-control vegetation. And, and and oversized furniture. Oversized furniture, because it's meant to remind you of being a child, because when you leave to join Time Lord Society, that's when you grow up, and all that sort of thing. The, the concept of Time Lords being loomed as a fully grown adult, but mentally a child. Uh, mm. Really interesting concepts, but it takes a while to really kind of grasp the vibe and the tone of what's going on here, but but Platt's strength as a writer is creating just this weird world that you can just imagine, like it builds a world in your head in the way a good book does. Oh yeah, and and, and it is weird because you know Chris is having these visions and and weird stuff is happening, but then he goes into the web and then he's out of his body and he's zipping around as a ghost hundreds of years earlier. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, but the murder mystery is, of course, I think the thing that is meant to drive the plot beyond it just being let's wander around this house that's our a plot yes that that is our a plot and it's very early dropped almost unsubtly almost unsubtly that gee this person who murdered quinces he he looks a lot like the way terence dix would describe the first doctor it's subtle as a sledgehammer. <laughs> well, if you if you are familiar with Terence Dick's novels and the way they describe it, yes, it is. If you've never seen a Hartnell story, it would it wouldn't be. And it, it does assume knowledge, but but yeah, look, it is there. But yes. to the B plot, in the capital on Gallifrey, Andred is now the Castellan, supported by his consort Leela and K Nine. There is trouble brewing between President Romana and the CIA, with Romana away on secret negotiations. Should we explain the CIA? The Celestial Intervention Agency, as referenced in The De- Deadly Assassin. Fantastic. Andred is also concerned that his cousin Redred disappeared on a mission to the House of Lungbarrow 673 years ago. Mm. Leela has learned this is the Doctor's old house and wants to learn more. In Paris, Ace, now known as Dorothy, is transducted away and interrogated by herself or someone who looks like her. Mm. who shoots her at point-blank range. When Dorothy recovers, she's told she was dead for 20 minutes. Now, one thing I still don't know, actually, I couldn't figure out why she was being called Dorothy like this. I know she wanted to go from Ace to Dorothy, but why is it this 
super duper French version. Well, this requires you to be familiar with a cutscene from Silver Nemesis. Oh my god! <laughs> Do you recall, Rob, on the extended Silver Nemesis, the scene where the Doctor and Ace walk past a portrait of Ace in sort of 18th century French woman's clothing? Oh, I, I do. And actually, they included that painting as an accessory with the Ace action figure. Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. And Ace says, I don't remember that. And the Doctor says, it hasn't happened to you yet. There is a large art part of the Virgin New Adventures that when they write Ace out for the last time, bend over backwards to make sure that that cut scene from Silver Nemesis is adhered to. And she actually ends up, although she has time travel powers through her motorbike, she ends up actually based in, I think it's 18th century Paris, which is why she's adopted the name Dorothy rather than Dorothy. And the, the fact that she's moved on from Ace is because she's an older woman now. She's moved on from the Doctor. She's now, you know, an, an adult and has sort of left the, the Ace character behind her. Yeah, I got that she was in modern Paris and she was going to zip back to older Paris after having done some shopping in the modern day. I, I got that much. Oh, but this is some extra information. This is good. Yeah. Now, the point I want to make here, and we will expand on this in our, our, our final discussion, but that set of paragraphs I just read to you, if somebody pitched that to you for a fanzine or something, you would say, mate, get your hand off it. You've, you've got Andred, you've got Leela, you've got K9, you've got Romana, you've got the CIA, and you've got Ace. Two Aces. Two Aces. And um, I think this is a good point to make the point that this, I think, feels a lot like an RTD series finale. Yeah. And this is what I talk about when I talk about this being the finale of a big, long-running series of books, in exactly the way that The Stolen Earth and Journey's End were the end of the RTD era, and they bring back all these wonderful, memorable things to let the audience just have a really good time and wallow in nostalgia. And that is exactly what is happening here with all these characters coming back. It, it is a Doctor Who fans book. Oh, big time. Um, but I must admit, I was impressed by the characterization of Leela. I, I had a vague memory from when I read this 20-something years ago of her being very badly written and she's kind of bored and, and not really doing anything. But but she's actually, a, I thought, a very strong character who Andred utterly respects, utterly treats as his equal and as his consort, not just a, you know, missus at home, and, and defends with other Time Lords who look down their nose at her and, and she stands up for herself with other Time Lords. I, I like the way that Leela is written here as somebody who loves Andred, wants to do the right thing by Andred, but is still Leela. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. That is, of course, the first part of the book as we've broken it up. To move into the second part, the Doctor and Chris continue to explore around Lungbarrow. You know, it's all dark and gloomy, and the Doctor continues to keep Chris in the dark, literally uh, and figuratively, <laughs> while they're doing this, whilst obviously showing that he knows where he is and he knows what's going on because when when he goes past mirrors he'll like hide his face with his hat and things so he knows what's up and there's some really interesting writing here with chris who's a very loyal companion to the doctor and and in his mind he's saying the the doctor's clearly lying to me and and lying badly how do i call him out like can you call the doctor out for lying? Like, what's the polite way to tell the doctor he's a knight? This isn't him manipulating me or him being judicious with the truth. This is him lying to me. Exactly. And, and as they're doing all this sneaking around, as I mentioned, Lungbarrow is in this state of gloom and decay, and it has been since the events of 600 and 
73 years ago when the house disappeared it's 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 literally sunk into the earth is what's happened um so there's like tree roots growing up out of the out of the walls and you know obviously the windows are covered over and and so on it's quite a weird place chris is introduced to the surviving cousins who they come across uh there's here we go some sci-fi names there's glossman uh and glossman clearly loathes the doctor and the feelings mutual there's Alice who sounds like a good brand name for a watch, actually. Probably a Swiss watch of some kind. Uh, He's the replacement for the Doctor after the cousins declared that, you know, the Doctor is dispossessed and and gone. They spun up Alice on the loom to to fill in the uh, the requisite number of cousins. There's Jobiska. There's Rind. There's Sathralope, the old housekeeper. She's telepathically linked to the house. There's Innocent, uh, who seems to be most warm with the Doctor. And Arkew who is an older cousin who also witnessed Quince's murder and has been hunting around for the will. These are all that is, is left of the, the 44 cousins who aren't the Doctor. Now, not long after this, Arkew is murdered and the Doctor is again a suspect in a murder. We have further flashbacks where we see the Doctor and Innocent clearly as, as really close friends. She seems to be his, his best pal in the family. And we, we get a glimpse into how difficult the Doctor's early life in the house was in, in various ways. Even just names he would be called, like Wormhole and Snail and things like this, uh, which relate to him having a belly button, which loomed Time Lords aren't meant to have. Anyway, we'll maybe come back to that later. After playing Sepulchasm, which is a Gallifreyan board game, which it takes a few sections of the book talking about Sepulchasm to actually work out what, what it is, the Doctor explains to Chris that the TARDIS has actually removed some of his memories to the nearest spare database, which just happens to be Chris's mind, hence all the recent flashbacks Chris has been having, apparently, of the Doctor's life. So Innocent and the Doctor then look into Chris's mind uh, and see the scene with apparently the Hartnell Doctor killing Quences and, and the Doctor says, well, that's that's me, but I didn't kill Quences. So, you know, the, the, the plot thickens. Yeah, look, a few things to perhaps pull out of that part of the A plot before I talk about that part of the, 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 the middle third of the B plot. That paragraph introducing the cousins, that happens over quite a few chapters and I've got to say, some of the cousins are really well written. In a set particularly, it's clear that Mark Platt likes this character and is enjoying writing for this character and she comes across mm. really well. Others aren't. I, I still couldn't really tell you anything about Joe Biska. Yeah. Alice, you know, okay, he's a bit slow and he's the youngest cousin and he's the replacement for the Doctor, but he's a bit thick. Mm. Sathrolope just sits around a lot. Yeah, and, you know, you sort of just sort of in your mind, she's, okay, she's grumpy old housekeeper. Yeah. Okay, um... <laughs> Fair enough. I kind of get that. There are a lot of these sort of characters that that, that that come in. And whilst I think Platt's world building is really good, his character building isn't always as good as that. Mm, they're all kind of weird too. This is what I mentioned, you know, earlier saying he's rubbing his hands together saying, <laughs> if you think Ghostlight was weird, they're, they're all just weird and argue and walk around the house doing weird stuff. You know, did you get that feel? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it does challenge, I think, a Doctor Who fan's perception of Time Lord society because we're very used to stuff like the Three Doctors and the Five Doctors and the Deadly Assassin where it's the Doctor chatting to people in the capital who Mm. are members of the High Council or have very big jobs. Whereas this book really says that, well, actually, 
there are lots of Time Lords who fill lots of jobs, including the guy who's in charge of the Capitol's catering, who is yeah. a member of the Doctor's family, or the person who's in charge of the filing, and that you know not everybody gets to be a Cardinal, and not everybody gets to be in the High Council and go to the Panopticon and wear big collars. Mm. Lots of Time Lords are just doing kind of everyday jobs. And that introduction of real mundanity into Time Lord society with really weird characters did challenge me a bit. Yeah. And obviously they've been driven weird by by being buried underground for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But even then, you know, for example, the Doctor's flashbacks to his relationships with Glossman and Quince's weren't normal either. No, that's true too. Um, and, and look, some of this stuff, again, was helped by the fact that I knew from the, my previous reading that the flashbacks were the Doctor. So when they talk about the doc, the, 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 the person learning um, as, as a new person, it's like, okay, I know that's the Doctor and I, I, can, I can put that in. But that's not clear when it's written. You have to go back and find it. Yeah. On to the middle part of the B-plot. Leela is being questioned by the CIA until a projection of Romana, still away from Gallifrey, appears, frees her and Ace, who had also been imprisoned by the CIA, and introduces them to each other. Romana brought Ace to Gallifrey, but her transmat was intercepted by the CIA. They killed her to upload her to the Matrix in an attempt to learn information. There's a long escape from the capital, during which Leela's canine is damaged, and repaired by Romana's canine. <laughs> they escape to Lungbarrow via Ace's time-travelling motorbike, carrying an orb from Romana for the Doctor. Tell him it's for Fred, she says. Doesn't this sound like fan wank in places? <laughs> As a sentence, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean. Listeners believe us when we say the actual writing is far, far better, in the same way that, as I said, if we said to you that there's a story where Sarah Jane and her son bump into Captain Jack and the dudes at, at, at Torchwood and they all hang out with um, um, Penelope Winton's character and they meet Davros and, you know, <laughs> you'd, you'd go, that's terrible. But if you watch The Stolen Earth, it's actually amazing. Yeah. It's the same thing here. And look, where I, I say there's a long escape from the capital, that's probably a three or four chapter action beat. That's actually a very good action beat and the capital guards get involved and you've got two canines doing all sorts of cool stuff. It, it's really quite fun. And it's probably the most actiony part of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that for sure. So moving into part three, which we've, uh, I guess, carved the novel up into these three parts. This is where it's all going to happen, Dave. Uh, oh, yes. in a <laughs> In a flashback, the first doctor is refused a promotion at his job. And at the same time, he's he's given an invitation to Quince's death day to come and, and you know, see the reading of his will and, and, I guess, watch him die and all of this stuff. And he doesn't want to do that either. Glospin shows up and starts telling him stuff like his genetic profile doesn't match that of the lung barrow loom and things like this. And he attacks him. They have a, they have a bit of a blue. The hand of Omega uh, comes out of nowhere. And <laughs> it, it does. And it sort of burns Glossman on the arm and he sort of oh, he runs away it saves the doctor the hand of omega then opens up and the doctor is like why choose me so that's kind of weird and next thing we know hartnell is stealing an old tardis <laughs> and he wants he's going to leave gallifrey or at least go back to its past 
Yes. So that's a very interesting flashback that we will come back to, I think. Mm. Because in the present time, the Doctor's old robot tutor, Badger, gives us all a history lesson on the Hand of Omega and its attachment to the other. Mm. The Doctor loses a game of Sepal Chasm to Glossman, but inside the game's vortex, this, this game has a vortex, just with us. <laughs> Inside the game's vortex, he finds Quince's lost will, just as Ace and Leela are captured by the house servants, the drudges, and brought to the cousins and the doctor. We haven't mentioned drudges at this point. They're these big wooden automatons, basically, huge things that can, you know, pick up people just under their arms and, you know, walk around the house carrying them. Yeah, and when the house is functioning normally, they do the dishes and make dinner and all that sort of thing. But in this crazy, hidden, disappeared house, they're not rogue, but they're a little bit rogue. Yes. Badger rescues Redwood from the transmat in which he's been trapped for 673 years. He had been sent with a message that the house was to be excommunicated because of the looming of an extra cousin, Alice. Now, this is, I think, an important point because... And let's talk about it here. One of the big things that Platt introduces into the Doctor Who world in Lungborough is this concept concept of the looms. That this yes. is how Time Lords make new Time Lords. They push a button on a loom, it creates a new Time Lord, and so they're not just pushing the button every day when they get bored and there's millions of Time Lords. Each house has a quota. In the case of Lungborough, you can have 45 Time Lords. When somebody dies, you loom a new one. Because the Doctor didn't die, he just ran away, the house people, the, the, the Lungborrowans, are saying... Well, he's gone. He's out of our lives. We need a new cousin. The capital and the high council are saying, well, no, the doctor's still alive, so you don't get a new cousin. So therefore, you've broken the law by having a 46th cousin, and therefore, we're going to cut you off. But because their reason for it that they give Redwood doesn't get transmitted back to the capital, mm. the capital never finds out, so they cut off the house. And that's why the house has disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Redwood... Uh gets stuck in the transpat for a long, long time. That's right. The Doctor has an argument with his cousins over his actions and finds his TARDIS in the main room. It's, it's actually suspended in the roots above the main dining room. Mm. Jobiska wants to leave to be with the missing cousins in a flooded part of the house. This results in a long adventure where Innocent is killed and later regenerates. Romana joins them all, and the Doctor is beaten senseless by the cousins. Again, one of these sentences you read is like, what? Absolutely, but again, it's this scene of the Doctor and the cousins trying to go into another part of the house, flooded, filled with a couple of swimming mutant creatures. It's actually quite a cool scene, but... It sets us up, I think, for what is really the big final act and the big reveals of the book. Oh, yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. There's all sorts going on here. Even where Innocent is is apparently killed. I mean, we're, we're talking spoilers. She's not actually killed. She regenerates soon after. But the Doctor thinks she's dead and cuts off her extraordinarily long hair to go down into this well. And it's very Rapunzel-like climbing down someone's hair like that. And, and I thought, oh, that's that's kind of fairy tale-esque, isn't it? You know, he's weaving all sorts of stuff into the book. Moving on to a, a bit I'll read now. The, the Doctor has a mental flashback to the dark times, which the others then share. They're looking to his memories. Uh, he can see the other farewell, his family, including his granddaughter, Susan, who is the last natural-born child on Gallifrey. The other also confronts Rassilon, who refuses to let him leave, but he is rescued by the hand of Omega, 
before realizing this is probably just a brief respite and then throws himself into the original loom where he's basically shredded physically and mentally. So we'll just stop there for a moment. That Susan is the granddaughter of the other <laughs> and the other suicides essentially into the original loom. Isn't that yes, interesting? It, it is. And there's a really good scene there as well where the other confronts Rassler and says, I'm done with you. This isn't, turning out to be the utopia you wanted it to be. You're a little bit crazy. You're a little bit dictatorial. Basically, mate, I'm out. I'm tapping out. Yeah. And Rassilon says, you know, like hell you are. We're in this together and I'm not letting you leave. And yeah, that that's sort of where the other says, basically reaches the point where he goes, I've got, I've got nowhere to go. I've got no escape. And Rassilon is a really interesting character there. I certainly was reading him in the tones of the the wrestling from the five doctors mm. so, where where are you going you very sort of like that <laughs> which which was a fun little um, image for me now shortly after this the first doctor arrives in the in the chaos that's going on you know gallifrey's burning the others killed himself he's told susan and I, I can't remember whether it was like his wife or a nursemaid to Susan or something like that. I didn't quite pick pick up on that this read through, but he's told them to, you know, go and hide. The first doctor arrives because he's stolen the TARDIS and gone back in Gallifrey's history. Well, the, the hand of Omega's taken him back, I think is the important point. Indeed. And he is recognised by Susan, although not by his appearance, but by his presence. She She just somehow knows that this is... This is her grandfather. This is the other. But really, it's the first doctor. Uh, and he says he's an exile from his his time and invites her to come and travel with him. So here we get the, the kickoff into, you know, what we know as Doctor Who on telly. Absolutely. And that moment where Susan meets the first doctor really does echo all those times when you see Time Lords meet each other and recognize each other. And then a moment later, acknowledge that, oh, you, you actually don't look like you used to look. I, I think, for example, is where, when Runcible meets the fourth Doctor in The Deadly Assassin and looks at him and says, oh, that's that's you. And then a few moments goes, haven't you had a facelift? And they're clearly not <laughs> recognising each other in the way that we would by face. There's something deeper and Time Lordish going yes. on. And and Susan says, you know, you, you don't look like my grandfather, but you you are my grandfather. I, I'm recognising you in that sense. Yeah, and, it, and it's because when he has suicided into the the loom his genetic material has gone out into all the other house looms eventually uh sort of reassembling itself as the hartnell doctor yeah returning to the main part of the house the seventh doctor is effectively tried for the murders of quincis and arku we learn that before the doctor departed gallifrey glossman took a skin sample of the doctor which he used to regenerate into a look-alike of the hartnell doctor then murder Quinces, and then regenerate again. So everybody thought it was the Hartnell Doctor, obviously, but mm. it was Quinces who briefly looked like him. The Loom's record of regenerations confirms Glossman has used more regenerations than he claims he has. Alice confesses to killing Aku because he was fearful that once the Doctor returned to the house, he would be killed for being an overquota cousin. Yeah. So the, the penny starts to drop here. So that blue that Glossman and the First Doctor had, that was where he took the skin sample. At what point did you work out what the resolution to the murder plot was going to be? Oh, you're making me think back to like 2004. So I sort of knew it this time around. I didn't know, as far as I can remember, that it would involve regeneration. 
like like a guy literally regenerating into looking like another guy, you know, because I, I don't think I probably thought that was even possible at the time. And here it's explained that he's he's taken a skin sample and he's, I think they say he's a eugenicist or something. Um, Geneticist, yeah. yeah. It, yeah and, and that's how he's done it, yeah. Yeah, I, I was starting to clue that it was going to be something like that, maybe a couple of chapters earlier. But I must admit, I did spend an enjoyable large part of the book thinking about, well, what's what's the resolution of this? Because it is established early on that there is evidence that the Doctor left Gallifrey before these incidents took place. So mm. we, we know that it's not the Doctor. And the Doctor knows it's not the Doctor. But the Doctor admits it looks like it's the Doctor. And so, yeah, it, it's it's a properly interesting murder mystery because we're going, well, how, how do all these bits work themselves out? Well, you've also got to throw in that we, we see in flashbacks that Quences was murdered, but Quences is in some sort of, like, glass coffin and he seems whole and he seems to be in stasis and he doesn't seem dead at all. And it's only much later in the book where the Doctor sort of turns off this illusion and you see that Quences is, is, is actually just like a skeleton in a box that you realise that, yes, he was actually killed. For a period, you're being told he was killed, but he still seems to be alive and in stasis. So there's, there's even some sort of, um, you know, ambiguity there. Yeah, absolutely. And also around what tricks Strathalope is playing as the housekeeper. Mm. Mm. Exactly right. Now, moving on, Ace and Leela blow a hole in the buried house so everyone can escape out of the house. And Ace says she knows that Leela is pregnant. I think she knows because she saw Leela eating a lot of food at the dinner or something. Like, oh, you're (laughs) you're eating for two. Something like that. Uh, There is a final confrontation in which the Doctor admits he doesn't know what he is. But with Chris's help, he escapes with the core of the loom before the house destroys itself. And I I think that's a pretty key thing here. You know, we're sort of given all this background and we're shown the other and the other suicides and his genetic material reforms into the Doctor thousands of years later. And we're sort of shown all the pieces, but the Doctor, the Seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, however you want to think of him, it's like, I I, I don't know what I am. I don't care what I am. You know, it's not that big a deal in the end, even though it's just been explained to us, which I thought was an interesting way of, you know, portraying it. Yeah, it's definitely presented as this could be it, but... It might not be it. Now, the CIA show up and confront President Romana, uh, who makes a deal to end the, the the conflict, the rebellion that's been going on. And that all ends with sending the Doctor on a mission to Scaro in his TARDIS, which has also changed its interior over the course of this adventure. Which, of course, leads directly into the telly movie and the Seventh Doctor's regeneration. Exactly. Now, of course, this book is sewing up a lot of loose threads. So Chris leaves to join Bernice. I think Roman is going to send him off to join Bernice with a time ring or something. Yep. Leela stays to have the first child born on Gallifrey in Millennia. We'll get to that after we finish here. <laughs> Romana implies that she's been on a mission to Khan, talking to the Sisterhood of Khan. So that brings us full circle back to the, the, the Curse of Pythia and all that stuff. And the Doctor asks Leela to name the child after him. And then he leaves for Scaro. The end. The end. So uh, I will give the book credit because it does take all the pieces of the Doctor Who universe and puts them exactly into the right place where we find them at the start of the telly movie. So in, in the same way that Time Worm Genesis, all the way back in 1991, picks up right where survival ends, there is a very deliberate attempt made here to 
put these books back into the TV series. So this seamlessly rolls into the telly movie. Mm. I've got to ask at this point, Dave, before I go into my summary. Yes. Th- th- this is the end of the new adventures. This is the series that you loved. This is the series of your youth. This is you feeling like you're watching Doctor Who on television. How did you feel when you read this? Um, Very mixed thoughts. Hmm. Uh, I certainly was very excited by the way that it did blend into the telly movie. I thought that that's really cool the way that they've they've done this, and they've been foreshadowing that for quite a while. Um, there's a book that comes a couple of books earlier called The Room with No Doors, where the Doctor starts to have premonitions of his incoming regeneration, and in fact he's being taunted um, by the fact that it's going to be a meaningless death. It's just it's just going to be an accident. It's not going to be you saving the universe. It's not going to be you as time's champion. You're just going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and have to regenerate. And and and, and that's sort of being foreshadowed. So they build it up, and I, I think that I, I thought that was really cool, and that meant a lot to me at the time that these books were acknowledging the telly movie and 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 fitting it all in. I was very engaged by the idea of the looms and the other and knowing where the Doctor was and. Part of that excitement was less about reading the book and going, that's exciting, as it was about talking to other fans in the local club and and comparing notes on that and going, wow, we've just discovered this happened. What do you think about that? So Mm. it it, it was a really big thing in fandom that we all engaged with. But on the other hand, and, and this was the case again reading it now, there was a part of me that got to the end of the book and turned the last page and thought, is that it? Mm. Because there's a lot of great exposition and a lot of great moments and a lot of great ideas and you feel like you've had a really interesting cerebral adventure. But when I actually sat there and thought about the plot and the resolution and I thought, okay, the Doctor wandered around his house and then left. (laughs) Nothing actually happened. And at the end, the house, uh, we should say, the house throws itself off the side of the mountain it was built on. So there's sort of like a reset. The house is gone at the end of the story. Yes. Now, a question for you, Rob. Mm. Did they find the other 38 cousins? Uh, well, they had gone down the well, which I don't know whether it was meant to be allegorical or literal. Certainly it's a literal place where the Doctor, you know, cuts off Innocent's hair and lowers himself down into the well and then gets beat up by the cousins. When Joe Bisker heads off to join the other cousins, it's like they're in a trance. They, they go almost zombie-like. Like, I, I'd have to go back and read the section, but it's almost like they just get up in the middle of a scene yeah, and just yeah, wander yeah. wander off. Like, oh, I'm over this. I'm just going to go and sort of drown myself in this flooded area of the house. Again, it's part of this weirdness of the book that, you know, you read bits and you can reread them and you still don't really understand what's happened, aside from Joe Biska has gone off and sort of drowned themselves with the other cousins. So I think all the other cousins are there. They're just down this well... They're not sort of really there at the end of the book, though. So whether they are really dead and they were spirits that beat the Doctor up or what, I I don't know. Or whether they were still in the house when it went off the cliff or... I yeah, don't know. That, that was definitely a part of the book that kind of lost me. I, I, I enjoyed the imagery of the Doctor going down the flooded part of the house. And it, it's obviously the part that is on the, the cover of the original book. And, yes. and there were some nice ideas, but it almost felt as though it was so keen to get to the Doctor's vision of ancient Gallifrey, which is which is really what the whole novel is setting up, that it just rushed past, hang on, what's are the cousin down a well? Okay, we're now having a vision where the Doctor's naked apart from his jumper. Fine, we'll, 
Right, well, let's just focus on that. That was a weird bit too. He's wearing his question mark jumper and he keeps having to pull it down to protect his modesty because he's nude. Why is he nude? Because he, he's vulnerable. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. But then he got given some clothes that were woven out of his memories and had his memories sort of shimmering over the surface of the robes. There's, there's so much imagery in this book. You've really got to read it. You know why that happened? Why is that? Because it's weird. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, again, rubbing his hands together. This is weird stuff. Yeah, I uh, enjoy it. Can we talk about the Doctor? Sure. When I read The New Adventure First Frontier last month, and I spoke about it on the podcast, I said that David A. McGinty absolutely captured the character of the Seventh Doctor, and I could hear McCoy giving the lines. This is very much the Doctor at the end of The New Adventures, and it really hit me how different he was, and even more so in this one, because this is the Doctor going back to the childhood home that he's run away from. He's scared, he's nervous, he's angry. And and he's he's an angry bastard for most of this book and sometimes really didn't feel like the Doctor at all. Did you get that feeling? Oh, absolutely. Because there's a scene where Chris has found Glossman and Glossman's been locked in an oven. And when the Doctor shows up, uh, obviously the Doctor and Glossman don't like each other. And before freeing Glossman from the oven, the Doctor actually turns the oven on. Mm. And you think, what, what, hey, what's going on here? He's going to cook this dude. Uh, what? It's, yeah, he's he's a bit odd. He, he is very odd. What did you think of Chris Quidge? Well, I've not read a lot of books with him in. Uh, obviously, I know he comes from this sort of law enforcement background, and that seems to come into his investigations and how he perceives people and stuff in this book. So I picked up on that pretty quick. Yeah, I, I, look, I like Chris. He's a good character. Um, he is introduced about 10, 12 books earlier with the character of Roz, who he first admires. As she, she's his senior adjudicator, the, the, basically the law enforcement group he's with. And he also is in love with her later on. And then she dies in, in the book that had the hard drive crash and didn't come out till after all the other books were over, which was very unfortunate. Yeah, because in this, he's sort of thinking about her at the start. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she's gone, but she hasn't gone in the series yet because yeah. the book hadn't come it, out it, yet. It, it's, it's a mentor that he sort of had a crush on, was in love with and who died, and that informs a lot of his character in the last few books. Um, he, he's good here. I think that it is a shame for his character that this is the last McCoy new adventure. So the fact that it's also the last Chris Quedge new adventure is kind of an afterthought, and I think that's a bit of a shame. A lot of the characters in this just sort of seem to be fulfilling... Well, obviously, they're fulfilling what the author needs them to do, but I don't know where I'm going with that thought. Scratch that. It's not a book about characters. It's a book about happenings. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of happenings, Mm -hmm. there's a sex scene, Rob. Is there? Didn't you notice? I may have missed it. With Andrew and Leela. I know they they talked about it. There, there, there's a bit where they're um they're in bed together doing things that Gallifreyans have never done and giggling and thinking, aren't we naughty? But isn't this delightful? Oh, that yes, yes. <laughs> Which I thought was a really interesting way of having a sexually active Time Lord, in that it is sort of like Time Lords don't do this ever. Like, I, it doesn't quite have the words, but basically, Andrew's like. I'm the first time to get laid in like thousands of years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, which is a really sort of interesting moment. And, and obviously, look, it has to happen for, for Leela to get pregnant. Yeah. Which, look, I think segues into what I want to talk about, which is, does this fit with the timeless children? 
it wasn't an elephant in the room at the time this came out, but it's an elephant in the room now. And there are also a few other things to sort of tease out too. First, I'll say that my head canon is that there's a multiverse going on out there. You know, and anything that contradicts something is just simply happening in another universe (laughs) because there are contradictions. For example, while Romana brokers some sort of arrangement with the Sisterhood of Khan in the novel, that's why she's been off talking to them. And certainly by Day of the Doctor, Gallifrey has children again because we see them. And they're not they're not grown adults who have probably come from looms. They they are they are real children. So we can take it that the curse of Pythia was lifted, and Gallifrey doesn't use looms anymore. So that's probably part of that sort of coming together with the sisterhood of Khan that Romana's doing here. Stuff like the sound of drums and a good man goes to war show that the Doctor he had a cot when he was a baby. So he was a baby. He wasn't a full size person and the master appears in flashback as a child you know where he looks into the vortex and goes crazy but that comes from the time ostensibly when there were looms so that doesn't fit at all you know so instantly this is where i start thinking, well there's just a multiverse because these things just don't don't fit at all look they, they don't fit at all they completely cannot be rationalized with each other and the fundamental difference is that mark platt is writing for a doctor who fandom uh, and a doctor who base for whom the Doctor is sexless. And basically he's answering the question, how does somebody who never has sex have a granddaughter? And how do we get more Time Lords if they never reproduce sexually? And Mm -hmm. that's where the concept of the looms comes from. I think it's a wonderful concept because I like my Doctor sexless and I like that science fiction idea of the Time Lords being being loomed. I think it works. Obviously in New Who, um, for, for perfectly valid reasons that I don't like, but I get why it it has to happen. The, the Doctor has a sexuality. He can, if mm. not fall completely in love and have a sexual relationship with his companions, he can certainly go part of the way. And look, if you want to read it, you know, he did stop Queen Elizabeth and, and maybe a couple of his <laughs> companions. You, you can read it that way. I prefer not to. And maybe I've got my fingers in my ears. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's that's fine. Um, can I kind of still rationalise it a bit? Look, I can blink and squint and miss the bit about Time Lords being loomed fully grown and go, no, the Doctor and, and the Master were just loomed as, as, as babies and then they grew up. That's You can still loom a baby. That's still fine. Nobody has sex on Gallifrey. Um, I can still get there. Um, but, but look, obviously, they, they, they can't be rationalised with no. the timeless child. Well, I was going to say with specific regard to the timeless child, I don't think Chibnall would go this deep and fanish because it's a hell of a thing to explain. But I like the idea that the timeless child grew up to be the other, which means that the Doctor isn't actually the timeless child themselves, which was a big bone of contention for many people, but has elements of the timeless child's DNA through the looming process. So in that sense, Hartnell would still be the first Doctor. The Doctor would still have finite lives. I mean, we've already seen that he had to get a recharge from Mm. the Time Lords uh, at the end of uh, Matt Smith's era, you know, rather than have these infinite lives of the timeless child. But to contradict that is the theory, and here we go, Dave, that the child of Andred and Leela is actually the other. Mm, okay. Do you know this theory? No. This is a whole th- thing that Leela is essentially the Doctor's mother because when the Doctor notes that the, her child will have a half-human, half-Gallifreyan pedigree, so to speak... Oh, yes, I did note that bit, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll just call him after me. The implication there is that the child will one day travel back in time to become the other, who then dissolves himself in the Loom Network to be, 
to be reborn as the Doctor thousands of years later. Now, obviously, this book is a year after the TVM where the Doctor revealed himself to be half-human. And I have a quote here from Mark Platt. He said, I don't know whether anybody picked up on that little hint that this is actually a time loop. Yup, I'm very naughty. Leela and Andred are... Dot, dot, dot. Oh dear, perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned it. The implications are far too horrific to contemplate. Yes, I must admit when I, I got that moment of the, the baby being half human, I thought, oh, tell him movie reference. Okay. And I must admit I didn't explore it quite in that level of depth. Um, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, that works. That's cool. Yeah. That's fine. Well, it's, it's certainly what Platt's aiming for, that the child of Leela goes back in time, becomes the other zaps himself and eventually becomes the Doctor. Yeah, so look, speaking of The Timeless Child... Yes. I remember this book coming out, and it certainly did not blow Phantom apart the way The Timeless Child did. No. And I, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that, and I'll go into those in a moment, but it is absolutely fair to say that it certainly was a very big moment of debate. Do you think that the looms are a cool idea? Some people said yes, some people said no. Did you think this book was a wonderful completion of all the new adventures it's set up some people said yes it was and that was great some people said yes it was it's a, distil- a distillation of all the bad things in the new adventures so you know yes and some people said no this was a terrible ending but i, I think it was mainly positive and-, and i think the reason why this was taken so much better than the timeless child I- i've got three reasons the-, the first is if you're still reading Lungbarrow. You are a hardcore Doctor Who fan that stuck with the show in the 80s, has read now 60 books or, you know, kept up with the series, even if you haven't read every one of a 60-book series. So you are invested and you are in this world, whereas, you know, The Timeless Child is a mass audience thing watched by millions. Mm. The other thing is that this is obviously a build-up over a number of books and going right back 10 years ago, as I said, to the stuff that Cartman and Aronovich and the like were doing back in the McCoy era and certainly through the other books. So there is a build-up to it here. It didn't just come out of absolutely nowhere like The Timeless Child. But the other thing is that it gives us a get-out-of-jail card because it doesn't say the other is the Doctor. And I think if it had done that, that would have been a big mistake. It says that the Doctor is some connection to the other. Is he... The actual other rebuilt? No, because he looks different and he doesn't remember being the other. Um, Mm. Maybe occasionally bits of the other's personality come through. The Hand of Omega recognises the soul, if you like, of the other in the Doctor and that's why it attaches itself to him. And Susan recognises parts of the other, again, his sort of his soul, his presence in the Doctor, but it doesn't say the Doctor is the other. And depending on how you like it, you can go, he's the other in all but name. Or you can go, you know what, it's just some of the essence of the other distilled into the Doctor and influencing the Doctor. And so you can kind of find your comfort point with, yes. with how this feels rather than the Doctor is the timeless child. And everything, yeah. you, everything you knew before that is now wrong. Exactly. And also, like I made a, a big deal of at the time when we were going through the book, the Doctor specifically says, you know, he's not sure what he is and he doesn't care what he is. That, you know, yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it, it's kind of like, if you want to buy into this, buy into this, and that's great. If you don't, that's cool too, because you know what? There's one book, more book, and then we're out of here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I lean into it more in like how you and I are both descended from folk who lived hundreds of years ago, Dave, thousands of years ago. 
And if, if someone could see one of our ancestors from a thousand years ago, they might look at you and go, good grief, you look exactly like that person or you talk exactly like that person or you have mannerisms like that person or all of those things. And I, I see the, the doctor as having some genetic material from the other as almost being like a descendant of someone from times past. So that if someone could actually see you, obviously they can't because we don't have time travel, but if someone could see you who knew that other person, they could make the connection like Susan does. She Somehow she just innately knows that this is her grandfather, even though Hartnell doesn't look like the other. You know, that that's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very similar. I like this idea of the Doctor having the connection, but he still, for me, is the Doctor. He was raised in the House of Lungbarrow. He got bored with the world of Gallifreyan society and then said, sod it, I'm going off to explore the universe. Um, the Hand of Omega helps him to do that. He's kind of not quite sure why, but hey, if you want to tag along and power out my TARDIS, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And then things happen and... Yeah, it, it's kind of cool. You can take or leave as much of it or as little of it as you want, which I guess brings us to our final views, Rob. And look, I will kick off just by repeating, I guess, what I've said for the entire podcast. It was a very enjoyable book that I wanted to keep learning more. The imagery and the ideas are very, very strong. The mystery is good. It's clever. I enjoy the fan wank because I am a fan. And, you know, it was nice to see Romana back. It was nice to have a reference to the cousins. Uh, nice to, you know, mention the feral ambassador who's on Gallifrey. You know, it's just a, a little thing there. It's got its faults. It It, it is an image-heavy book that is not a character-driven book. It does get a bit lost and perhaps, dare I say, struggles under the weight of its own pretension a couple of times. But I had no trouble getting through this book. It was a fun read and... A very worthy end to the McCoy era. If you look at the McCoy era, this, this as, as the Cartmel era, I think that this is a very good full stop to a very particular thing that Doctor Who was for about 10 years. I agree with all of that, but I will say something else, that this isn't one to uh, recommend to more casual fans, you know. <laughs> no, I would not be starting with Lungbarrow, definitely. <laughs> You know, uh, even a casual fan who wants to know what all the fuss is about. Why is this book so is, is so expensive? You know, why does everyone talk about it? Does it really reveal the Doctor's identity? You know, all of that stuff. I think handing someone like that this novel would just be cruel. You've got to really be into the continuity and what the Cartmel master plan was working towards and really want it, you know, to get the most out of this book. It's not a fun adventure of the week kind of thing. Although on the surface it's, you know, it's a murder mystery A plot and a political thriller B plot sort of thing. But deeper, there's so much more happening. You've really got to want to know this stuff and really want to sort of work at it to get there. So yes, it's it's very satisfying for you and I to read. It's interesting. It, it's plat <laughs> look how weird I am. It's all of that stuff. But for a casual, and maybe we've had some casual fans listening to us tonight... And I think this is probably maybe the best way for you to, <laughs> to have heard the story, perhaps. Us sort of distilling it through some uh, some cheesecloth, perhaps. Uh, yeah, although perhaps maybe now that you've heard the story and know what all the references are, you can read it and enjoy that imagery for what it is. Yeah, true enough. Well, that was Longbarrow. Lungbarrow done and dusted. Was it worth the wait, folks? Let us know. <laughs> Please let us know what you think. And and did you enjoy us going back and, and, and looking at a book and talking through the plot and... All the rest of it, do you want us to do more in the future? Because mm, I'd certainly like to... I'll, I'll put it out there. I would have loved to have done Alien Bodies. Fair enough. 
<laughs> you wouldn't? No. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not that I wouldn't, but maybe I'd like to read something a little less heavy before I, I dive into oh, sure. alien bodies, which is equally... Oh, my God. It's probably denser. Yeah. It's very, I'd, very, I'd say it's so. very cool, but it's very dense. Yeah, that is true. Anyway, let's let's close up shop tonight, Dave. What have we got? We got some letters. We've got a letter here. We've got one from Kenny Loggan in Scotland. He says, "Hi, Robin, Dave. Just wanted to say hello and thank you for your fascinating podcast on the old DWM comic strips. It was so interesting hearing about your love of the comic strip from the eighties and nineties. I myself was a child of the nineteen seventies, and so long before DWM." I had to contend with the Countdown TV action and TV comic for my weekly fix. During this time, the Doctor was played by the wonderful John Pertwee, and he was brought to life by the talented Jerry Haylock for the majority of his comic adventures. These included the wonderful Dalek adventures of Planet of the Daleks Sub-Zero. These are in colour and in centre spreads, although during the early run of TV action, the Doctor was always given the front cover which Haylock beautifully painted in colour, while the rest of the two pages inside were in black and white. Mm. These comics were essential reading on Saturday mornings, while munching on sweets and eagerly awaiting that night's adventure with the Doctor and Joe Grant on TV. I still, to this day, have my complete collection of these comics from 1971 to 1974. That is very impressive. I remember buying the first issue of the Doctor Who Weekly when it first arrived and loved the early adventures such as the Iron Legion and Star Beast. Thank you for such an enjoyable episode and keep up the great work as without a doubt, you guys are my favourite Doctor Who podcast for my Doctor Who fix. Kind regards, Kenny Loggan in Scotland. Look, thank you for that, Kenny. And as we said, everybody grew up with a different era of comics and everybody has different favourites. It's just lovely to hear what different people's are. Yeah, I, I loved hearing about that from the, from the seventies. My my only experience of that is through um, you know articles and things about it. I, I have no sort of first hand experience of, of reading those in Countdown TV action. No, me either at, at all. So it's 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 great when fans share information like this. I love it. Um, I just want to briefly mention Latin Alice on YouTube. She's also on Twitter as Alicia Neptune. She made a wonderful YouTube video about us recently, Dave. I know you saw this as well. Yes. She was talking to her um, followers on YouTube and she said, look, I, I know this podcast called The Doctor Who Show and it's really great. And, you know, I, I was sitting there watching this thinking, wow, this is amazing. There's a, a young lady sitting in a park in Vancouver, you know, talking about our podcast. This is so strange. And she took our idea of putting uh, New Who Doctors in classic episodes and classic Doctors in New Who episodes and sort of gave that a twist to uh to her listeners to her viewers i should say to come up with other stories not doctor who necessarily but other stories where you would change around characters and put a character from something in a different movie or tv show or whatever and i thought this is great you know so we sort of have influenced a youtube channel we'd never come across before because it's not a doctor who channel by any means uh latin alice on youtube and this whole sort of thing of fans sharing things and fans being creative the world just spins around and more creativity happens and it's it's just amazing i can't put it into words dave i thought it was great it was very very cool and yeah thank you very much for doing that uh that was very cool rob that brings us to the end so it's time to talk about our next episode now we've looked into the future and realized (laughs) that our november episode will probably be in the middle of a bunch of very exciting jodie whittaker hot takes so yes. we thought, let's do something light and frothy for our monthly show then. And we've, we've got that planned out. And let's move forward our next 
deep dive into a classic season to October. So we're not mm-hmm. trying to watch a whole season of Classic Who and a whole season of New Who in the same month. <laughs> so that's what we're doing next time, listeners. We're doing a deep dive into another classic season. And once again, you get to vote for which of our four options you most want us to watch and talk about. Rob, what are your two nominations? I'm wondering if we'll have snaps, Dave. My two nominations are going to be season 13. Ooh. No, no snap. Okay. And season 20, the difficult middle Davo series. Not quite snaps. Okay. Uh, I have gone, I'm going once again for season 11. Okay. And we've had a bit of a McCoy theme going, and in that strain, I'm going to put forward season 26. Ooh, okay. This is great. So we've got 13, 20, 11, 26. And the supplementary, <laughs> 34. That's some, that's some good variety. I'll be uh, very happy to watch any of those seasons. All right, so look out for that poll on Twitter, folks. I'll probably plug it every day or so, and you can vote. And the power is in your hands. Tell us which season we're going to look at. It is, but look, it's been great fun talking about a novel. We've covered a lot. We've got a lot coming up in the next couple of months. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we will speak again soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the DW Show. Dot net.